This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. All right, well, uh, before we get started uh, this morning, I happen to thank, uh, I meant to mention it to you last week in case you all did any of the reading in um, Palmer Robertson for this week, uh, if you noticed in the course of that, if you haven't started into that book yet, then you won't have noticed it. But if you have, uh, he uses some different terminology than what we've been using in class. Uh, you find that sometime amongst different covenant theologians, they'll come up with different ways to refer to various things. And Robertson, in his book, uh, he refers what we have called so far the covenant of works, he calls the covenant of creation. It's a different word, but um, or a different name, but it's essentially the same idea. And what we will call the covenant of grace, he calls the covenant of redemption, which is perhaps doubly confusing because we refer to the covenant of redemption, which is not the covenant of redemption that he has in mind. So that you kind of have to sort that out as you're going through Robertson. Uh, for the most part, Murray and Horton, the other two texts that we're using, for the most part, they refer to the to the various covenant administrations the same way we will. But um, at least at least within Robertson, uh, this is Robertson. This is us. What is for him the covenant of redemption is for us the covenant of grace. And what for him is the covenant of creation for us is the covenant of works. And what we what we call the covenant of redemption, he doesn't really talk about much. I don't know if that scribbling on the board is helpful at all. But just, just to, to note as you're reading through Robertson, um, when we have talked about the covenant of redemption a little bit last week, when you stumble across him talking about the covenant of redemption, he doesn't mean the same thing. He's referring to the covenant, what, what we'll call the covenant of grace. I don't know, hopefully that's helpful to you. Did any of y'all come across that yet? It, it, it can be a little... A little confusing at first, but he he ha, he has reasons why he uses different words, and we'll address those as we come to the various covenants administrations. All right. Well, last last week uh, we when we stopped, we were getting a general overview of just the, the flow of covenant theology. Uh, obviously, we're coming back to all of this in much greater depth over the course of the semester. But just so you have an initial overview of the way that. Uh, redemptive history is laid out in covenant theology. We were just getting a, a broad, quick overview of the way that the covenants flow from one to the other. And we were tracing them in the order that they would be laid out if you were to move from eternity past to the end of the age. And if you remember, we started out with the covenant, the covenant of redemption. And then we'd move to the covenant of works. I like you're putting a dot there. Do y'all remember? So we had essentially covered those two, and we're about to go to the to the covenant of grace. Before we move on, do y'all have any lingering questions from last week about the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works? Like I said, we're going to come back to all these in detail. So don't you know, if you if things are a little bit unclear. Um, don't, don't worry about that. All right, so you have the covenant of redemption and the covenant of works. And the covenant of works in the third chapter of Genesis ends pretty badly for Adam. He sins. Uh, he subjects himself to the covenant curse, which is death. And that brings you into at least the temporal 
revelation of the covenant of grace. And the in the covenant of works, we talked about how God is, in a sense, overcoming the uh, ontological divide between creator and creation. In the covenant of grace, God is overcoming the much more serious divide, the moral chasm between a holy God and sinful mankind. Uh, covenant of grace deals with uh, the redemption of men. Um, in the covenant of grace, uh, Jesus Christ acts as the representative or the covenant head, or the mediator. You, some different words are used in different contexts. But Jesus serves as the mediator for the elect. And on behalf of the elect, Christ does a number of things, but two of the things that he does within the covenant of grace are that, first of all, he steps in and suffers the curse that mankind had brought upon himself in the covenant of works. Remember, in the covenant of works, by Adam's sin, he brought death upon himself and all of his posterity. And Christ, in the covenant of grace, in the place of the elect, suffers the curse that they are due for having transgressed the covenant of works. So Christ comes and suffers a death on behalf of the elect under the curse of the covenant of works. And he also comes and fulfills the righteousness that mankind ought to have fulfilled in the covenant of works. Uh, for he fulfills the righteous demands that Adam uh, should have fulfilled and would have fulfilled had he rendered the perfect and personal obedience to the law of God that had been called for in the covenant of works. Because you, if you remember, even if... Adam had not sinned, he still had to render righteousness in the covenant of works. And so Christ not only suffers the curse, he also fulfills the demand of the covenant of works. Now, if you're thinking in uh, normal systematic theology sorts of categories within Christology, uh, Christ renders both active obedience, he fulfills the demands of the law in the covenant of works, and he renders passive obedience. He suffers the curse uh, for having transgressed the law. And he does that on behalf of the elect within the covenant of grace. Um, now, some people, when they try to essentially demonize covenant theology, they'll say that the covenant of grace really becomes nothing more than someone else fulfilling the law on behalf of the elect. That it's not really all that gracious. It's just the law done over again. Um, and if you take if you take away all the negative caricatures that they're putting in that, it's it's somewhat true. Christ comes in and he he meets the law, or meets the law's demands, and suffers the law's curse on behalf of the elect. Uh, that's what Christ does within the covenant of grace. Um, so you have Christ uh, doing those things, the Spirit applying uh, redemption to the elect, and so then at the end of the covenant of grace, so to speak. God has achieved his covenantal purpose. And we said last week that God's purpose has been to draw his people to himself. And by the time you get to the end of the covenant of grace, that has happened. Uh, their sin, the, the sin of the elect has been forgiven. The righteousness that they have needed has been given to them. Uh, they now are with God and in his presence through the work of Christ in the covenant of grace. Um, that's uh, in very short scope what occurs in the covenant of grace. Is there any questions about Does all that make sense? All right, now, within the covenant of grace, there are a number of what are normally called covenantal administrations, or sometimes they're called covenantal dispensations, although obviously not in the dispensationalist sense of dispensation. But there are, um, essentially, in, in working out that overarching covenant of grace, God enters into individual covenants with specific men or groups of men, and through the movement from one covenant to the next, God moves forward His redemptive purposes. Now, you know, again, different people point to different ones, but others. Um, with, within our reckoning, there are essentially six different covenantal administrations under the covenant of grace. Uh, first, you have the, uh, often called the Proto-Evangelion, the first announcement of the gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. Um, at least in time, uh, 
in temporal terms, kicks off the covenant of grace. Then you have the covenant with Noah. You have the covenant with Abraham. You have the the, the Mosaic covenant, uh, the covenant with, with Israel um, mediated through Moses. Then you have the Davidic covenant. And finally, you have obviously the covenant with David. And then you have the new covenant that is uh, foretold by the prophets and then ultimately fulfilled uh, and inaugurated, inaugurated and fulfilled by Christ. So within the overarching covenant of grace, you have these six different stages through which it moves, uh, moving from one to the next with uh, in a orderly progression. Now, there are a whole host of disagreements over how all of these covenants fit together, you know, how much continuity there is from one to the next, how much discontinuity there is. Um, most of the disagreement centers on the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, some people take the Mosaic Covenant out of the covenant of grace altogether. They say it belongs even back with the covenant of works. Uh, some people say that it fits entirely within the covenant of grace. Some people say it's partly the covenant of grace, partly the covenant of works. There's a whole lot of different opinions. But for our purposes, and I'm kind of giving away my position here, I suppose, but for our purposes, we'll put it in the in the flow of the covenant of grace. Um, it, it's one of it's as much an administration of the covenant of grace as the covenant with Abraham or the covenant with David. Uh, it fits into that uh, that progression of God's work. Now, I have found it helpful in kind of trying to help people understand the way that these things fit together. Uh, to to speak of the various covenantal administrations as different pieces of a puzzle, or you know, with the covenant of grace being some big jigsaw puzzle. You know, each piece of a puzzle is its own distinct piece of the puzzle. You can hold the piece in your hand. It has its own little notches, its own little holes. It's its own piece of the puzzle. It's a distinct entity. But at the same time, the purpose of that distinct entity is to fit in to the whole. Really, the the little individual puzzle piece by itself doesn't do you much good if it's not fit into the piece that comes before it and if you don't fit the next piece into it. Uh, and essentially, that's the way that these different uh, administrations of the covenant of grace work. Uh, as God reveals each subsequent one as you move through the scriptures, it's almost as if God is laying out the next piece of the puzzle. Uh, they're each important to understand in their particulars and in their uh, different emphases, but really, they're larger purpose comes in revealing the picture that appears on the whole puzzle. Uh, the, the purpose of each of the covenants is in disclosing more about the overarching covenant of grace of which all of them are a part. Um, and we'll, over the course of the semester, we'll look at each one of these uh, in a lot more detail. Um, are there any questions at this point, at least about the various covenant administrations? That tends to be, as far as people who would try to slice out the Mosaic Covenant altogether. Yeah, well, as far as taking it out altogether, you don't normally find that within strictly Reformed circles. You do find guys within Reformed, the Reformed camp who try to say that it's partly works, partly grace. Um, you get that sort of position in Mike Horton, for instance, that you're... That you'll be that you'll, you'll come to that in the reading. Um, the, you know, people say that it it is to some extent a republication of the covenant of works. Um, that there was a a demand within the covenant or within the Mosaic covenant for a certain level of uh, well, I would say a certain level of meritorious obedience. Some people would say it um, on a personal level. Horton, at least talks about the um, the Mosaic Covenant calling for a uh, 
a baseline obedience for Israel as a nation as opposed to individuals. Uh, so there's w- within the reform camp you have uh, a tendency to make distinctions within the Mosaic Covenant. It seems to me the way that uh, evangelical scholarship on covenant theology is heading, that tends to be more the trend to emphasize the nationalistic and legalistic aspects of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, when, when we get to it, we'll talk more about it in more detail. Any other questions on that? All right, now, as I mentioned last week, if you recall, uh, there is there is some disagreement within the Reformed community, and that you know, can at times seem a, a somewhat small community, but even within the Reformed community, there is a disagreement over the relationship of the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. Y'all remember me mentioning that? I mentioned it quickly last week. Um, the covenant of redemption, of course, being the pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian covenant, and the covenant of grace being this, you know, the, the outworking of redemption. There are some uh, theologians who make a distinction between the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace, saying that the covenant of redemption is its own distinct covenant. Uh, it's an entirely different entity from the covenant of grace. If you, if you run with the puzzle analogy that I used a second ago, they would say that the covenant of redemption goes in its own puzzle box. It's an entirely different entity. Uh, the covenant of grace is distinct from it. There are other covenant theologians who say that the covenant of redemption is actually a part of the covenant of grace. And normally those theologians will refer to the covenant of redemption as the council of peace. Uh, that tends to be the preferred term, it seems to me. Uh, we mentioned that as a, a alternate name for it the other week. Uh, these men say that everything that we described as occurring in the covenant of redemption, the, you know, the inter-Trinitarian pact, the agreement of the Father to give the elect, the Son purchasing the elect, the Spirit sealing the redemption, all of those things still occur within this agreement, this pact, but yet it's covenantally one with the outworking of redemption through Abraham and Moses and David and Christ. Uh, They uh, put them all together and say that to distinguish between a covenant of redemption and a covenant of grace is to introduce a uh, a division that's not really in the scriptures and therefore it introduces a whole host of problems as you try to work out the implications of the covenants. Um, so there is that level of uh, disagreement amongst Reformed theologians and you know, guys who uh, are sound in every way take both positions. So just, you know, and we'll get more into that in a couple, I guess probably next week. But um, But just to let you know up front that there is that amount of uh, that that level of disagreement about how the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace fit together. Uh, the the contents are the same, but they group them differently. Now that I think should pretty well covers a, a broad overview, quick overview of covenant theology. Are there any questions on any of that before we move on to the next phase? After kind of wrapping up what we had not finished last week. Yes, yeah, we're, um, Lord willing, we'll be we'll get to the covenant of works next hour, and we'll start getting into that because that is a big uh, disagreement. So we'll, we'll we'll get into that whether there's grace in the covenant of works. Um, all right, well, that's a, a generally a, an overview of covenant theology. So we've we've seen a, a, that general overview. We've said what we meant by covenant theology. We've looked at the terminology that occurs in the scripture and i think the the last thing that we need to do before we jump into opening the scriptures and finding uh, the structure of the covenants is to have a brief overview of the history of covenant theology now um, you could probably have a entire course on the history of covenant theology but we'll, we'll try to pack it into 30 minutes here uh, and just try to hit the highlights that are relevant for the things that we'll be we'll be studying this semester. There's 
a number of developments over the course of uh, the history of covenant theology that end up impacting the sorts of questions that guys are asking today. So we'll take a little while to look at that. Uh, the, actually, to, to some people, to say that you're going to cover the history of covenant theology wouldn't necessarily imply that it would take too long. Uh, a lot of people say that covenant theology is purely an invention of the Reformation, that it was not around before that, it was invented by the Reformers, um, and really its history can't be traced back any earlier than the late 16th century. Some men would even say no, later, no earlier than the 17th century. Um, and you know, if, if, if that were the case, that'd be fine, uh, I suppose. But normally when men, when theologians put a late date on the start of covenant theology, uh, they're doing it for a purpose. And the purpose, inevitably, is to say that covenant theology was essentially a, a construct of men, that it was brought about to, uh, to soften uh, some other theological emphases that it was brought about for polemical purposes that it's not really drawn from the scriptures so much as it was the result of the circumstance of the men who created it. Uh, it wasn't uh, some sort of long dormant Christian truth that the Reformation recovered, but it was something that the Reformation imposed on the scriptures. And of course that is not true. Uh, so we want to give a, like say, a, a quick overview of the history. And I think it goes without saying that if you want to trace the history of covenant theology, you have to start with the scriptures. As we've seen, covenant is a, an enormous theme within the scriptures. Uh, covenant theology, so to speak, is being done in the scriptures. And for the rest of the course, we're going to be looking at scriptural passages uh, where the covenants are explained, where they're applied. Uh, it's very clear that the scriptures uh, are written from a covenantal perspective. Even when you get into the New Testament, uh, where the terminology of covenant doesn't occur as frequently as it does in the Old Testament, you still have the covenants playing a, a central role in Revelation. Um, even when you uh, get to the Last Supper, uh, such a, a critical event in Christian history, if you want to put it that way, uh, even there you find Christ himself teaching about his work and his person through the lens of covenant theology. Uh, the in the well-known words where Christ says that uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood uh, at the, the Last Supper. You know, that's a, a point when Christ is facing the agony of Gethsemane. Uh, he's facing the mystery of the dereliction on the cross. Uh, the, the disciples are desperately needing some uh, understanding to undergird them in the, the uh, trials that are coming. And at that critical point, Christ chooses to explain who he is and what he's doing in terms of the covenant, the new covenant that the prophets had foretold. You see, even in the teaching of Christ, you see that the covenants and their progression through history uh, is a, a central theme of his teaching. And you get that as you continue into the New Testament and uh, the Pauline epistles. Paul writes uh, in a number of places about uh, the covenants. Uh, we'll look at a number of those. Uh, you get into the book of Hebrews, it's uh, incredibly prominent in Hebrews, particularly in chapters 8 through 10, uh, you see uh, very clearly that the, the scriptures are written from a covenantal perspective. Uh, they were uh, Covenant theology, so to speak, was being done in the early church. Um, when you move out of the scriptures into the post-apostolic church, um, you know, the era generally from around the death of the Apostle John up through the middle of the 3rd century, that sort of time frame, uh, you see that still uh, covenant theology is playing an important role in the thinking and even the, uh, the work of the church. Now, for some of y'all who've had a little bit of church history, when you think of that era of church history, the, uh, the post-apostolic period, what sort of issues come to mind? What was the church dealing with? in that time frame. Mm -hmm. Good bit of Christology. Was there a, any heresies in particular that jumped to mind at nine in the morning? Not yet yeah, that yep. Uh, Gnosticism and particularly docetism within Gnosticism. Uh, for those of you who may not have had history yet 
Gnosticism was a early church heresy uh, by propagated by the Gnostics, and one of one of the most uh, prominent errors of the Gnostics was Docetism, which is drawn from the Greek verb dokeo, meaning to seem, and Docetism was the belief that Christ appeared to be human, but he wasn't actually human. He was really just, he was divine, but he wasn't fully human. He just was somewhat like a very persuasive apparition walking around. Um, that was one of the central tenets of Gnosticism. Uh, another, any other, recall any other of the main teachings of Gnosticism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah, matter is evil, spirit is good, which went along with why they said Christ didn't um, have a true fleshly body. That would have made him evil in their eyes. Um, they also made a strict division between the God of the Old Testament and the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said that the God of the Old Testament was a completely different entity than the Father of Christ. Uh, the God of the Old Testament was mean and vengeful. The God of the New Testament, the God and Father of Jesus Christ, was a loving and merciful God. They were different uh, entities. That's another one of the heresies of Gnosticism. And that was one of the big challenges facing the church in that particular era of its history. The other uh, challenge that they were facing was from Judaism. You know, a lot of the Christians uh, were converted Jews. Uh, they were de- dealing in or operating in a part of the world where there was a large Jewish presence. There was a lot of interaction uh, with Judaism. And, of course, within Judaism, the belief was that Christ actually was not the promised Messiah. Uh, he was, um, well, they had different views of what he might have been, but they certainly held that he was not the Messiah. And so the early church was dealing on the one hand with Gnosticism, which put this divide between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, and dealing with Judaism, which was claiming that Christ was not the promised Messiah. And in both instances, the early church was having to essentially prove the unity of the covenant of grace. They were having to prove that, the, on the one hand, against the Gnostics, were having to prove that the God of Abraham and Moses was also the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a unity in the covenant of grace, the same God at work throughout it. And then against uh, the Jewish contingent, the early church was having to prove that Christ was the promised Messiah, that the promises to Abraham, the promises to Moses, the promises to David, that all of them were fulfilled in Christ. And so on two different apologetic fronts, the early church was having to prove the unity of the covenant of grace. That what Christ was doing, or what God was doing in Christ in the new covenant was the same thing that he had been doing back with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses. So in the apologetics of the early church, there's a strong undercurrent of this covenant theology. The the unity of the covenants, the unity of God's work through uh, the different covenantal, covenantal administrations. So as you as you read through the some of the patristics uh, you get this uh, repeated emphasis on the unity of the covenant of grace uh, it's particularly prominent in Irenaeus if y'all are familiar with Irenaeus Irenaeus of Lyon Lyon is a city in modern-day France. And Irenaeus was one of the, uh, was a, you know, a very influential church father. Uh, he lived in the second century. We don't really know exactly when he was born, but he died in 202. So that places him for you chronologically. And he regularly made use of this covenant concept, the unity of the covenants as you move through redemptive history. Uh, he particularly wrote against uh, his, probably his, his main work was called Against Heresies. And in that particular work, Irenaeus is 
writing, as the name would imply, against heresies. And he's particularly focusing on Gnosticism, uh, the thought of a man named Valentinius and another man named Marcion. Uh, Marcion had essentially come up with his own canon of Scripture. He had essentially taken out all of the Old Testament. He had tried to take the God of the Old Testament out of the Scriptures. Uh, And uh, Irenaeus is writing against that particular uh, heretical view. And in in his work against heresies, he constantly comes back to the unity of the covenants. Uh, He comes back to the fact that God has been doing the same thing throughout history, what he was doing with Abraham before and and then throughout, he's now doing through Christ. Uh, Irenaeus hits very uh, hard on the unity of the covenants, uh, not only in against heresies, but also in another one of his major works, uh, Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. Uh, He talks about the unfolding of God's redemptive plan through Abraham, Moses, David, Christ. Uh, He he comes back to this theme again and again. There are a number of other uh, church fathers who do the same uh, the same thing. Uh, I won't throw a bunch of names at you, but basically Irenaeus serves as a, a, a good example of what is a larger trend. And that is the early church using covenant theology on the one hand to push back against the Gnostic division between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God and simultaneously using it to show the Jews that Christ is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Uh, in, this, in essence, they're using covenant theology to pull kind of double duty, uh, showing the unity of God as well as uh, the, uh, the fact that Christ is the promised Messiah. That, uh, you find that running uh, throughout the, the church fathers. Now, um, after this period of the, of the, the post-apostolic church, there is somewhat of a, a lull in covenant theology. Um, essentially, it falls fairly silent. There's no real development, no real pronounced use of covenant theology uh, from about the 4th century on. And when you put together the fact that uh, men like Irenaeus, you know, they, weren't, they weren't writing large works devoted to expositing covenant theology. They were using covenant theology in their other polemics and in their apologetics. When you combine that uh, use of covenant theology instead of an exposition of covenant theology with the fact that covenant theology then fell into relative disuse for centuries, that's what leads people to suppose that covenant theology was an invention of the Reformation. They'll say, well, nobody in the early church was writing about covenant theology. Nobody was even talking about it for centuries until you get to the Reformation. It was an invention of the Reformation. When, in fact, if you look in the church fathers, if you look in the patristics, you find that it is used again and again. Uh, It was a prominent theme in the early church. And then, when you get into this period of relative silence on covenant theology, uh, there seems to be a a pretty good explanation for why that occurred. If you all remember from last week, we said that in the Old Testament Hebrew, covenant is always referred to as berit, and in the New Testament Greek, covenant is always referred to using the uh, terminology of diatheke. So in, the, in Hebrew, you have one term. Greek, you have one term. But then in Latin, there were the three different terms that were used to refer to covenant. You have testamentum, pactum, and foitus. You also remember from last time, perhaps, that uh, in the 4th century, Jerome translated the scriptures into Latin, the Vulgate, and that became the Bible of the church. Latin was the language of the church. Uh, it's rather surprising, particularly you know today, particularly for students at a seminary like RTS where the original languages are stressed. In that period, men who were some of the leading theologians of the church were not well acquainted with the original languages. They were brilliant with Latin, but a lot of them couldn't even read Hebrew, for instance. And so a lot of the men who were doing the theology of the church were working entirely out of the Latin. And when you move from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, the prominence of the covenant idea is largely lost. Instead of tripping over 
Berit 286 times in the Old Testament, you have a diversity of three different terms that are used differently in different places. And the, the prominence of the covenant idea is obscured. Uh, I think it's no mistake that it was when the church was purely, almost, almost purely working out of the Latin, that it was in that period of its history that the covenants fell into obscurity. When you get into the Reformation, uh, particularly the, some of the humanist reforms and the Renaissance leading up to the Reformation, there was the demand that the church return to the original languages of the Scriptures, uh, that they read from Hebrew in the Old Testament, they read from Greek in the New Testament. And it's precisely when the church goes back to the original languages that the idea of covenant again becomes prominent in the theology of the church. When they go back to the Hebrew and they see this one word, berit, occurring again and again and again in the Old Testament, they realize it's important and they give more attention to it. Uh, the same with diatheke in the New Testament. So when you get into the Renaissance and then into the Reformation, you do have a rebirth of covenant theology. But it is a rebirth. It's not a birth. It's not the creation of a new construct it's the rediscovery of what had been important to the early church uh, but had been obscured through this uh, over-reliance on Latin for so many, so many centuries. Um, but then what you do, you, when, you, when you get into the Reformation, there is this explosion of attention to the covenants, uh, particularly among the, uh, the magisterial reformers, kind of the main leading reformers. There's a great deal of attention to the covenants. Uh, we won't deal with any of them in particular in any depth. Uh, largely, you have men uh, developing what we discussed a couple minutes ago with the uh, covenant of redemption, covenant of grace, covenant of works. Uh, we'll skip over a good bit of that for time's sake. If you're interested in the the history of covenant theology, if, if you want to ask me about afterward, I can point you to some things that would be helpful to you perhaps. Uh, but for the time being, we'll skip all the way into the mid-19th century. Does anybody have any questions about anything between the Reformation and the 19th century that comes to mind? I don't mean to be skipping over such a large section, but I don't want to get bogged down in too many names and dates and things like that. Well, um, when you get into the mid-19th century, you get to a man named Heinrich Heppe. Anybody familiar with Heinrich Heppe? Heard the name? He, uh, he's best known, probably, for a work that he compiled known as Reform Dogmatics. And essentially, he went through a lot of the scholastics uh, and excerpted portions of their works and put it together in a compendium. It's actually a, a rather useful book for getting a, a feel for what the scholastic theologians felt about various things. But Heinrich Heppe's contribution... Uh, not a particularly good one, but a contribution to covenant theology didn't necessarily come in his Reformed dogmatics, but in some of his other work. And essentially what Heppe said was he, 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 was, he looked at the development of covenant theology and he said that covenant theology or the idea of covenant had essentially come about as an antidote to predestination. He said that uh, Calvin had taught predestination, he had taught uh, the doctrine of election. Uh, but then when the mantle of leadership in Geneva passed to Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor, uh, that you know Calvin was a nice guy, Beza was a mean guy, evidently, and he taught a much harsher form of predestination. Uh, he taught double predestination, as Heppe called it. Uh, he taught it with a much harder edge. And in Heppe's thesis, this caused a great deal of backlash in the church against an overemphasis on the divine decrees on predestination. And so in a reaction against Beza's predestination, the church developed this idea of covenant theology. Because when you look at the covenants and you look at them you know, developing over the course of redemptive history, you're moving from Abraham to Moses to David to Christ, there's this progression that softens a pretemporal decree of election. Essentially, you see God's redemptive work being played out over centuries instead of everything being decided at some unknown point before the beginning of time. 
That was Hepa's idea. Um, so he, so Hepa's thesis was that covenant and election were intention, and that the idea of covenant and the structures of covenant theology have been developed specifically to soften the emphasis on predestination. Now, as we'll see, and as you can probably already guess, that's utterly false. It's not at all true. Um, If you know much about covenant theology or about election, it's simply not the case. But nonetheless, it it was enormously influential and continues to be influential even today. Um, There are a number of leading scholars writing even today who implicitly assume Hepha's dichotomy between uh, election and covenant. And so when you, you do certain areas of reading and covenant theology, it's just taken as assumed that covenant came about to counterbalance predestination. But that's traceable not to the scriptures, but to Heinrich Hepha. And that'll come up more as we move through the course. But just to, to give you an orientation to where that idea began, it began with this this man, Heinrich Hepha. Um, yeah, it's enough about Heinrich, I think. Any questions on that? All right. After, after Hepha, the next important person to note in the development of covenant theology and where we find ourselves today with it is Karl Barth, a man with whom I assume y'all, or y'all have at least heard his name. Uh, Bart was a Swiss theologian in the 20th century and uh, enormously influential. And while Bart appreciated some aspects of covenant theology, he recognized that it was uh, there was something he had to address, and he, he he appreciated some aspects of it. He didn't make any secret about his absolute distaste for the overall structure of covenant theology. Bart was uh, decidedly against uh, covenant theology. He particularly was against it because when you get into the particulars of the covenant of grace, uh, the headship of Christ in the covenant of grace, the headship of Adam in the covenant of works, uh, you are, I would say, inexorably led to a limited atonement. Only those who are in the covenant of grace are in the covenant of grace. Only those who are in Christ are saved. Uh, There's a, a, a definition to the atonement, which was not particularly uh, likable to Bart. And so Bart had a pretty full-bore assault on covenant theology. Uh, He had five critiques in particular that he brought against covenant theology. Uh, Those, if you're interested in reading them, uh, he he primarily deals with them in Church Dogmatics 4.1 which is the, the doctrine of reconciliation is what it's called. Uh, and he, like I say, he has, he has five particular critiques of covenant theology, uh, and most of them have to do with particular aspects of covenant theology, so we'll deal with those when they come up. But his overarching criticism is that when you lay out covenant theology... Now, a minute ago, we, we were looking at the way cov- the covenants would go if you move from time past to the end of the age. But normally when you address covenant theology, and this is the way that we'll move through it in this course, you go from the covenant of, the covenant of works to the covenant of grace. And if you have a covenant of redemption, you would probably put it there, to the covenant of grace. And so what Bart said was that in this structure law is given priority over grace. Uh, that um, even when you get to grace, grace is still built on the foundation of law, therefore making law the primary, uh, basically the foundation of God's relationship with man. Uh, it emphasizes God's justice over his love and his mercy. Uh, Bart said that essentially the structure of covenant theology uh, necessitated a legalistic view of God. Uh, that grace was obscured and the law was overemphasized. Um, now, 
know, we'll, that's, again, not true, and we'll, we'll address that as we go through. But that was Bart's main critique of covenant theology. And Bart didn't just critique it, he also had a solution that he offered. Um, Bart proposed his own understanding of covenant, uh, what, what he thought to be a, a biblical understanding of covenant. And this is how Bart um, defines a covenant. And this is, again, out of his uh, church dogmatics. He, he, he writes this. He says, The fellowship which originally existed between God and man, which was then disturbed and jeopardized, the purpose of which is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in the work of reconciliation, we describe as the covenant. Is that relative? Relatively clear, Bart sometimes doesn't write the most compact sentences. Uh, the fellowship which originally existed between God and man, which was then disturbed and jeopardized, the purpose of which is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in the work of reconciliation, we describe as the covenant. So for Bart, the covenant referred to that fellowship that originally existed between God and man, meaning in the garden, the relationship between God and Adam, uh, that relationship that then was, as Bart says, disturbed and jeopardized, presumably by sin, and that now is fulfilled in Christ and the work of reconciliation, that is the covenant. Now, do you see what Bart has subtly, somewhat subtly done to covenant with this redefinition of it? Um, it's kind of an unfair question. Um, essentially, Bart has collapsed all of history into one covenant. Uh, you know, we, we said that you know, if you look at the way history goes, you have covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. Uh, there are these you know, multiple covenants, but Bart has taken and collapsed all of history into one covenant. It's the same covenant that runs from the creation of man all the way through the consummation at the end of the age. There's this one covenant and one covenant only. Um, the That particular view that Bart popularized is known as monocovenantalism. Mono meaning one, uh, one covenant. Uh, and what happens when you do that, when you collapse all of history into one covenant, is that essentially the severity of sin is drastically minimized. Um, there's, no, there's no difference in the way that God deals with man before sin and the way that he deals with man after sin. It's all one covenant. And furthermore, Bart is putting it to the particular use of essentially establishing the groundwork for a universal atonement. Um, if you notice in that quote that I read to you, um, Bart says that the original covenant uh, is the same as the covenant that will be in the consummation. Now, the original covenant would have been between God and man, not God and the elect, not God and his people, not God and Christ, or anything like that, but between God and the race of humanity. Now, if that's the same covenant that's fulfilled in the reconciliation of Christ and the consummation of the age, then what you end up with is the race of humanity finding redemption. Um, essentially, Bart, you know, by having this one covenant, this monocovenantal view uh, arrives at a universal atonement. Now, um, that's the, those are at least two of the, the critical errors that Bart made. He collapsed all of history into one covenant. He didn't have a distinction between a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. He collapsed it all into one covenant. And in doing that, he was preparing the way for a universal atonement. Now, those ideas that Bart had and that he uh, forwarded have, again, much like HEPA, they've been very influential um, ever since Bart put them forward. Are there any, before I keep going, sir, are there any questions about the, the, you know, the particulars of Bart's covenant theology? He, uh, 
Yeah, he 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 would. He he doesn't really even have much time for talking about the particular administrations, you know, to you know, talking about Abraham and then Moses that sort of thing. He primarily said he 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 recognizes he essentially can't get around the fact that covenant is prominent in the scriptures, and so he recognizes that it's there. But he says that it, you know, it starts with creation, it ends in the consummation, and everything else that's been proposed by covenant theologians has been man-made. And so he, he never really gets into too much discussion of the particulars of it. But, but, he, but he would say they're all part of this one covenant. He just doesn't give it much more name than that. He, he he doesn't do a whole lot of positive argumentation. I mean, he more just he more tries to, like you said, more philosophically try to show that um, that the normal that the traditional structure is legalistic. He he, he never he doesn't do a whole lot of exegesis to try to prove a one covenant. Uh, some of the about his about his only real weighty exegetical. Point we'll get to in just a minute, but under somebody else. Um, but now he, he doesn't do a whole lot of exegesis with it. Actually, most of his critique of covenant theology comes in a footnote. <laughs> I mean, it's one of his. If you looked at much Bart, it's one of his ten or twelve page footnotes. But um, it's a footnote nonetheless. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.